DKS 36 is powered by Cliff Central, uncensored, unhinged, and unradio. Hello, and welcome to the Digital Kung Fu Show, the podcast and video cast for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs across the world hustling today's markets. At Digital Kung Fu, we have one goal, to help entrepreneurs succeed in their ventures through information sharing, digitally connecting them with other entrepreneurs, and by dissecting and deconstructing the world's leading business minds right here on this show. Remember, you can view the full show notes on our website at digitalkungfu.co. .za or tweet this show using our handle at Digital Kung Fu ZA or follow us on Facebook.com slash Digital Kung Fu ZA. Silicon Valley is synonymous with tech startups. It is a place that is today the home of the world's most well-known internet companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Netflix, PayPal, and Tesla, but to name just a few. For a long time, it has been said that if you want to build a $1 billion tech company, you have to do it in Silicon Valley. And it is well documented that this is largely driven by the supporting ecosystem that surrounds the fortunate startups in the San Francisco Bay Area. One of the more prominent components of that ecosystem are the hugely successful accelerators like 500 Startups, Y Combinator, and Techstars. But what happens when you try to replicate these accelerator models in a country like South Africa? Well, when you look at some of the economic and technology barriers that we face here, some would say that it simply wouldn't be possible. And yet, I was lucky enough to be recently introduced to an entrepreneur who is doing just that. In fact, he's not only done it once, but he's done it twice and successfully too. His name is Zach George. He's an ex-Wall Street investment banker turned entrepreneur and who is pioneering corporate innovation and startup acceleration in Africa. What I love about this interview is the depth to which we explore how to design, build, and potentially even exit a startup in Africa. He's a walking treasure trove of information that is relevant to all entrepreneurs, and it's a large reason why this show is a little bit longer than others. We're about an hour and a half on this one, but trust me, it's worth sticking around. Oh, and pay particular attention to the part of the show where we give away something to all of our listeners. It's worth about a thousand bucks, so all you have to do is pay attention. (laughs) I'll leave you with that cliffhanger. So without further ado, enter Zach George. How's it, guys? And welcome to the 36th installment of the entrepreneurial education platform that is the Digital Kung Fu Show. I'm your host, Matt Brown, and uh, today I'm hugely excited to have a guest actually in the studio for once uh, (laughs) and not doing a long distance interviewing uh, process but um, his name is Zachariah George and he's the co-founder of Startup Bootcamp amongst many other things and uh, Barclays Tech Lab Africa and we're going to touch on all these things so Zach thank you for your time today it's great to have you in the hot seat you're most welcome I'm super excited to be here Cool, Zach. So why don't you kick us off? What are some of the headlines around uh, your entrepreneurial journey to date? Uh, what's that backstory you want to share with our listeners? Sure. Um, I've, I've, I found myself in a very unique, innovative, and inspiring um, space at the moment, which is tech startups and innovation, disruption, digital, etc. Um, but many, many, many years ago, I, I, I never thought I'd be doing this. Um, I actually come from a very boring conservative background. Um, I'm an engineer by trade. Um, following that, spent most, uh, got my MBA from Stanford in 2004. Um, 
2004 was an interesting time because um, the market, the economy uh, was just going up and up and up and up and up. Um, most of my colleagues at Stanford grad school um, were people that were either techies or people that loved venture capital and startups and things like that. And I actually looked down upon them saying, geez, why would you ever graduate from business school or from a top-notch university and end up going and working for a startup? So I, on the other hand, used conventional wisdom and went and spent the next almost decade working on Wall Street. Well, which at the time seemed like the smart thing to do, because if you recall uh, the big banks, the Goldman Sachs, the Lehman Brothers, the JP Morgans were just doing really well and things were looking up. Um, a, a story that I, that I tell often is about a colleague of mine at Stanford who ended up finishing university, well, grad school and working for a small startup that made videos. And he earned about a thousand dollars a month, which was, a fraction of what you could make as a consultant or a banker. And we all laughed at him then, but today, no one, none of us can ever call him because he was the fifth employee of what is now YouTube. So it just goes to show how when you live in an ecosystem like Silicon Valley, um, taking risks but measured risks and smart risks is what makes um, things better. So long story short, I spent the next few years on Wall Street as a banker, at Lehman Brothers, which is a story that I can tell later over a glass of Pinotage or Rosé. Anytime, mate. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was there t- uh, till the very last day when Lehman went bankrupt, and I happened to know the CFO of Lehman, and I can tell you some dirty stories of, of what happened Ooh. at the end. <laughs> um, spent a couple of years at Barclays in New York and randomly decided to come to South Africa to watch the World Cup in 2010. And it may sound like a piece out of eat, pray, and love, but I decided to stay. And here I am, six years, uh, six years on, and, st- and still going. Um, um, absolutely fell in love with South Africa, um, and resigned via Skype, and <laughs> that's it. So I've, I've literally gone from uh, a single guy living a block from Central Park in Manhattan, partying it up and working like an absolute dog. To now living in Komiki of all places, well, yeah. by the, by, where the surfs are always up, uh, wife and three kids, and awesome. Who would have thought? But that's that's how life is. Yeah, Cape Town has an effect on people. I'm actually uh, from Cape Town, and somehow nice. for my sins, I've wound up permanently in Johannesburg. So, but, uh, <laughs> I know what it's like. Cape Town is um, is an amazing place. But let's talk about Cape Town for a second. Sure. How would you describe the uh, sort of startup? ecosystem there and obviously you know we we spoke just before we started recording about silicon valley and how that has an ecosystem and you have a view on what you call the five components of a startup ecosystem maybe you can talk us through that sure absolutely so one of the reasons i still live here um versus the the um the the longing, for example, for people to go and move to New York and San Francisco. I mean, the, 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 I've done the reverse. And one of the reasons, um, for that is I saw something in the Cape Town ecosystem that reminded me so much of Silicon Valley. So in my humble opinion, um, the five essential components that, that create an ecosystem for innovation, for disruption, for investment, um, are as follows. The first one is obviously, 
the presence of really strong um, and reliable university and research center um, research centers. So what you're looking for is graduates from top universities in in in, in math, engineering, science, technology, um, electronics, computer engineering, etc. That aren't just driven into careers in academia mm. or corporate. But to use that very technical analytical knowledge to start companies, so there are parallels: Stanford University, Berkeley, Caltech, UCLA, and you compare and contrast them with what we have here: UCT, Stellenbosch, uh, Wits, the like. So, very strong technical universities and research centers that spit out graduates. Um, number two is uh, a very active government ecosystem that supports startups. So you're talking the government of California, Western Cape government, the government of Gauteng that supports from an R&D funding perspective. Sim- uh, similar parallels. Um, number three is the presence of what we call incubator and accelerator and startup support programs. And that's essentially um, a way to provide mentoring, advice, uh, content and structure to startups that – need help and support to scale effectively. Again, similar parallels between Silicon Valley and and, and the sort of Cape Town ecosystem. Number four um, is corporate venture capital. Uh, and that I'll actually come to that at, at, at the very end. Number four is actual pools of funding. So, and, and, and that is typically venture capital, angel investors, family offices, foundations, etc. Now, the funny thing here is most people assume that there is a huge shortage of funding in South Africa and Africa. That's, and that's not true. That's right? not true at all. Yeah. So, what's, what's important to note, Matt, is not capital, it's risk capital. Mm-hmm. So there is a huge abundance of risk capital funding in Silicon Valley, which is essentially people with a lot of money or funds with a lot of money, but can identify opportunities in the private sector that are worth taking the risk of investing in. So it really is an attitude towards money, not money itself. Mm. I mean, if you look at Cape Town and Stellenbosch alone, there is more than enough money compared to what you have in other parts of Africa. I mean, there are people that that, that, that tell me that the amount of money sitting in Stellenbosch alone is comparable to what you see in parts of the Bay Area. The yeah. problem is a lot of that money flows into traditional asset managers, funds, property, and other instruments. And there is there isn't enough of an education and knowledge about what venture capital is, what startup investing is. And then the last parallel is the role of corporates and how corporates work with startups. And that has is broadly called corporate venture capital, but I like to call it an an open innovation ecosystem. So I see a lot of parallels, which is why Cape Town and South Africa, broadly speaking, is the Silicon Cape of Africa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I totally share your sentiments. I mean, there's so much money, especially in the Stellenbosch, the wine re- route, yes. effectively that region, isn't it? Napa, Sonoma, yeah, Stellenbosch, yeah. Parle, Franschuk. Yeah. Do you go out there quite a lot? I do. I mean, listen, I'm, 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 I'm not a huge wine connoisseur, but I, I do like my, my reds. Uh, my okay. wife is a big, well, um, Sauvignon Blanc fan. Um, I'm more of a craft beer kind of person. Which really? Is why, which is why I love living in Cape Town because they have the best craft beer. Yeah. Have you tried Sunday before? I actually haven't. You should try that, but only drink one because otherwise you get pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. So let's talk about you a bit more. I mean, um, I want to talk to you specifically about Cactus Labs. 
which went on to effectively create, develop, um, and then effectively launch the first ever corporate tech accelerator program in Africa, which is hugely exciting. Um, and then you've got, um, I think it's called the Barclays Tech Lab Africa program, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So can you describe some of the events that led up to you forming that? And I'd like to unpack with you a little bit more about how or the reasons why you feel you can replicate mm-hmm. a Silicon Valley model here locally in South Africa. Sure. So one of the initial assumptions, and by the way, assumptions are the mother of all fuck-ups. Yeah, amen. Amen to that. <laughs> um, well, one of the assumptions that I made when I came here six years ago was because a lot of the parallels that I saw between Silicon Valley and Cape Town did exist, that you could replicate it almost instantly. So I spent the first three and a half years, almost four years in South Africa, um, working exclusively with international investors, and these are family offices, private angel investors, VC funds, mostly based in Europe, to make direct investments into South African and African startups, mm-hmm. and use that as 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 as, as leverage to um, to get local investors. Um, call it the you know the Stellenbosch, Cape Town, Joburg investing community to to syndicate deals together. And we didn't do too bad. Uh, it was an organization called Ustart. Um, and we did three deals in three years, the largest one being uh, a million-dollar investment into a health tech company in Stellenbosch called HealthQ um, that makes really precise computational biomechanical sensors for wearable devices. Cool. But an interesting um, – and this is an interesting point that I'm going to get to later – is um, – before you start looking at investing into an ecosystem, be it a mature ecosystem or an emerging ecosystem, you really have to understand what makes a certain ecosystem tick. So there, there are tons of people in South Africa that want to raise money to, to, to start funds. But before investing into companies, you really have to think of whether or not there is an appetite for risk and for second and third and fourth and fifth rounds of funding eventually eventually leading to an exit what investors call an exit so one of the one of the things we realized here is if there was no proper channel for startups to raise successive rounds of funding and create an exit the return to investors would always be contingent on that sort of cycle happening yep. and we didn't see that so one of the one of the missing parts of that puzzle is Corporates and institutions working with startups to provide them access to market and distribution. And that's, and that was a realization we made about two years ago, uh, which resulted eventually in us launching Tech Lab Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk about Tech Lab Africa just in a, um, in a second, but one of the things that I want to talk about is the concept of B2C and B2B business models. So, I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners on the, on the air have heard of companies like Uber, Airbnb, Twitter, Dropbox, etc. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right. So most of these now unicorn companies are B2C companies. So it's a business selling to a, to a consumer or a customer directly. Now, those companies work like magic in the States because they're contingent on an active, viral network of consumers that buy – Use and promote products that are technically savvy, right? Yeah. Now, if that assumption were to be transponded into an economy like South Africa, again, that's an assumption. You would assume that as long as you have innovative tech products, 
be it through online marketplaces or a way to book flights or a way to buy shoes, it would just work. Yeah. And that was my assumption five years ago. The problem is your consumer segment here is extremely small. Out of 58 million people in South Africa, only four or five million are active users through mobile phones or the internet and actively engage with brands. Um. So instead of looking at or instead of complaining about how difficult it is to sell innovative tech products, you really have to think of 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 what makes or what works best for a South African ecosystem. And that's B2B, right? And that's Ironically B2B. enough. You know, I'm so glad you raised this point about B2B and B2C because I've been talking to quite a, the, quite a few. I've had three Barclays Techstars graduates, if you want to call them that, or startups on the show. And um, the sense there is that, you know, if you don't have a B2C model in the States, it's often quite difficult or put it this way, it's harder to get traction. Correct. But over here, it's, it's, this, it's funny, it's this paradigm that uh, American or whatever you want to call it stigma when they come over here that they think that it will if it works in the states it can work here and it's just totally not the case so so you, you're right 100 percent Matt so you so, so, so from a South African perspective you got to think of what works best here and I'm going to give the analogy of the big five okay so the big five aren't just aligned the buffalo and I, I, I keep forgetting what the other three are. I think it's a hippopotamus and the wildebeest, or it's cool, it's left, fine, whatever. I don't even know what they are. It's fine. <laughs> but the big five is 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 a terminology that actually applies to the entire South African corporate ecosystem. So the big five banks: okay. Absa, Nedbank, F and B, Capitec, and Standard Bank. The big five insurance companies: All Mutual, Sunlum, Discovery, Hollard. You know, etc. Uh, the big five telcos, the big five retailers, pick and pay, shop ride, bullies, etc. So, mm-hmm. what 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 you start to realize is, unlike other African countries, corporates in South Africa dominate the economy. So they have not just dominate; they, they have a stronghold in the way things work, and that extends to parastatals, that extends to government. But the corporate ecosystem here is very controlled by the big five, big six, big seven players. Yeah. If you go up north to Kenya, for example, did you know? I mean, most people wouldn't know that Kenya has more than a hundred banks. A hundred. A hundred banks, ranging from cooperative banks, micro community lenders. And it isn't a factor of if if I want to roll something innovative or something disruptive that I have a monopoly because I'm a big bank. No, you literally have to compete with you know hundreds of other players. So it becomes a little more fair from a consumer perspective. I suppose now, that's why M-Pesa worked. That's why M-Pesa works. Yeah, exactly. Good point. So, but there's no point bitching about it because you can't suddenly. You know, unbundle the big five telcos, the big five banks, because they've been, you know, a long stay of South African, of the South African economy for centuries, mm-hmm. right? But what you can do is, is, is create, is take problems and convert them into opportunities. And this is where a lot of the innovative startups in South Africa have historically failed, but are now changing. So what I mean by that is, if you're a B2C startup and you're looking to, for example, um, look at ways in which you can send money between South Africa and Zimbabwe. You know, you're selling to consumers. You're a B2C startup. Now you're going to spend hundreds of millions of rand, if not more, um, on getting markets, market research, marketing to customers, doing multiple iterations of your product development, digital media. It's painful. Yeah. 
My theory on this, and it's echoed by a lot of people lately, is to take B2C models and convert them to B to B to C models. What I mean by that is you literally access your C through another B. Okay. So it's like, so if I was um, a fintech startup, I'd have a, a particular play or proposition which would solve a problem for Standard Bank, which would then resell that product onto the consumer, right? Exactly. It's exactly what it is. Okay. And it, it's such a simple, I mean, it took me three years to realize this, but the moment, it's, it's one of these like the penny just dropped, right? You literally say, what do corporates have that startups don't have? It's access to a huge database of clients, existing clients, uh, institutional clients and individual clients, retail clients. They have systems in place and structures to, to distribute and provide channel for products. And they have often licenses and technology that is hard to to obtain. And what they also suffer from is a massive amount of organizational inertia. Exactly. So if a bank, for example, wants to innovate, it would take them years and a complete overhaul of legal, IT systems, etc. to make a small change in in a product or process. Mm. What do startups have that corporates will never have? It's lean, agile, and the ability to to fail fast and fail quick and constantly innovate without having to reinvent the wheel every single time. So so the moment you get startups to work in lean, agile fashions, innovative fashions, together with a corporate, it's literally a marriage made in heaven. And all that you need then is the ability for forward-thinking directors at large corporates to say, I'd really like to see some innovation in, in the space that I'm working in. How can I work with the startup to affect that change and serve my customers? And the moment that happens, you, you literally see magic happen. Cool. And that was the genesis of the Tech Lab Africa program that we ran for, um, for Barclays. So I have two questions. The first one is, let's say I'm a startup and I sign up with Startup Bootcamp. We'll jump into sure. all, the, all the meat and potatoes around that yeah, in sure. a second. And I have a pure B2C player. Am I out or am I in? Absolutely not. No, you, you, you're in. As long as you have something solving a need for your customer, that customer is typically served in some way, shape or form by a bank, an insurance company, a mobile data company, a retailer that wants to market its product or services to a customer. Mm. So literally you're saying, how can I reach more customers through a large corporate? And the nuance here, Matt, is about how you engage with a corporate. You either engage with a corporate by saying, we would still retain our IP and we would license whatever we do to you that you could sell on to your, to your customers. That's, that's sort of the, you know, the, the base case situation. And corporates that are fairly advanced in the innovation game set up separate units called corporate venture capital units like Google Ventures or Microsoft Ventures that say, we're going to invest X million dollars into innovation and we're going to actually make investments into startups that we own either either fully or in part make that happen. Now, there are upsides and downsides of that. I'll give you a couple of examples in the um, – in the in the finance world, and then I can talk about Barclays Tech Lab Africa specifically. So, a large bank, we all know who it is, decided to buy Snapscan. Now, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners have used Snapscan before. I personally love Snapscan. It's cool. You know, I, I can pay for you know my street parking with it, and I can pay for a latte with it. Yeah, and never have to have a wallet. It's just my phone. Awesome technology. 
It's funny enough, you don't have the ability to pay with your phone completely cashless, even in certain economies in the States and Europe. And down south in South Africa, you can do that. Now, if this were a startup anywhere else in the world, it would be a global phenomenon. It would be a unicorn, a billion-dollar-plus wow. company. Yeah. Because think about it. It's, 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 it's like PayPal, but for, but for mobile payments. Mm-hmm. Without the difficulties of integration, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons why um, it hasn't grown to that extent is because a large bank owns it. So as a result, any innovation, any changes, any, any disruption that a startup wants to do needs a million signatures, legal IP protection, structure, sign-offs that makes it almost prohibitive for them to move forward. It's a similar thing with uh, companies like Rainfin that are, you know, uh, have a significant stake by, by Barclays. So as a result, they cannot scale as quickly as they would have liked to because they have Big Brother watching over them. Mm. So my personal view is unless there is a real hand-in-the-glove fit between a corporate and a startup, corporates should stay away from acquiring or, or owning majority stakes in startups, but rather partner with them and license technology from them where they as a corporate get paid a transaction fee, a license fee, a subscription fee, and work as a supporter of a startup rather than owning a startup. Mm. Which I suppose allows the startup to continue to scale. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And so that's one of the reasons why it's, 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 it's important for, co- it's important for corporates to not just look at startups as M&A tools or M&A targets, but, but, you know, to sign commercial agreements with startups that they, that can benefit both parties simultaneously. Mm. Um, can I ask a question sure. about disruptive technologies for a second? Sure, of course. So if that's the strategy, right? So I'm a startup with a fintech play and clearly technology is the underlying theme here, which needs to solve a problem for a bank and also for the consumer. So given the way, the kind of position that you, that you have in the startup ecosystem here in South Africa, and with your track record uh, in, in specifically financial services and so forth, if you were to describe, say, three disruptive technologies that you feel are almost no-brainers mm-hmm. to deliver a licensing model to a bank, yep. but then also which would allow scale outside of South Africa. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, there are quite a few, but I'll maybe I'll, I'll give you three examples of it. And, and funny enough, it dovetails into three specific companies that were part of the Tech Lab Africa program we ran for Barclays last year, which 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 
I'm going to pat myself on the back for a second, which was the first ever corporate tech accelerator. So I'm quite happy that it's that it's uh, off the starting blocks. Boom. Thank you. <laughs> so um, in the fintech space, which you know is you know short for financial technologies, it's it's literally. The reason why corporates until very recently almost ignored startups was because they viewed startups as either irrelevant or just beneficiaries of CSI, enterprise development, or literally glorified philanthropy. What's happened lately is corporates are losing out business to startups. So startups are eating corporate lunches, to put it bluntly um what i mean by that so i'll give you some, some, uh, some examples if you look at something like um payments yeah. or um cross border remittances now typically large banks and institutions like western union moneygram for example literally had a monopoly on how people send money overseas and you charge anywhere from 15 to 30% fees to send money overseas. I mean, I know cases of people sending money to Zimbabwe, to Malawi, to Botswana, Western Union, etc., paying ridiculous fees. Mm. Now, there was a company in our program called, in the Tech of African program called Zapgo, that used blockchain technology to be able to send money from South Africa to America or another African country, but not through a direct exchange, which is where the fees come in, but they bypassed all that by literally buying and selling Bitcoin. Yeah. So rand to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to dollars, dollars to rand. And they literally did not need a banking license to do that. Mm. It's because it, they literally just have a float of currency in dollars sitting in San Francisco at the San Francisco Bitcoin exchange, buying Bitcoin at the market rate, mm. reselling it immediately at a better rate. And being able to send money across using that platform. Now, a bank would take years to figure that shit out. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you have the head of banking at a large bank saying, wait a minute, that two-man two band get out of a garage in Stellenbosch, are they now taking our customers away? Hell yeah, of course they are. And it's, it's, it's only at that point when you realize that you could be losing business to a startup that you start to take them seriously. Yeah. And then you say, how could we work with them? And the startup says, listen, I can offer you a solution. This is my tech. This is my API. Now, and I respect the fact, I mean, having worked in a, in a large bank myself, you can't just embrace technology or interesting software and, and products immediately. You have to test it out. So the best way to do this is to take what works for a startup, test it out through a pilot program for six months to a year. And if it works internally within a bank and within a bank's beta clients, then launch it. Okay. And that's what happened. Another very interesting t technology that, that most of you may be aware of as consumers is secure digital ID. Mm. Um, that's I'm sure. Vinnie Lingham's play. Vinnie Lingham's play, uh, Civic, yeah. yeah. So there was a company called Consent that joined our the, the Tech Lab Africa program last year. And this is a beautiful example of how startups, and if, if you have any, if, if there are any entrepreneurs listening on the phone that run companies, you'll, you'll relate to this. Often you have a technology or a product that you can find a specific application for. But the moment you socialize it with an institution or a bunch of corporates, they can come up with different applications for your product that you never would have been able to get yourself. An example of that is 
um, shown a, a consent, built a technology based again on blockchain that was able to securely verify your ID through a combination of biometric data, your uh, your retina and your eyes, your ID book, and a whole bunch of things. But it was so, uh, stored in a secure digital vault um, in the cloud, uh, blockchain vault. Gotcha. Yep. The initial application of that was for women and children in rural parts of South Africa that could use that to identify themselves when they entered into hospitals, clinics, for testing, for checkups, etc. And they were completely nonprofit funded. Mm-hmm. We get them into the Tech Lab Africa program, and suddenly a banker at Barclay says, well, can you do this for to solve KYC? Know your customer? And the guy was like, what the hell's KYC, dude? And he's <laughs> like, know your customer. He's like, explain. And the, and, and the banker was like, this is a billion rand plus cost center for the bank, because we spent close to a thousand rand to verify every single customer and business that is a client of our bank. And, sh- and and then consent the, was like, geez, we can bring that cost down from a thousand rand to three or four rand using our technology. What that means is, once you've identified yourself with this blockchain technology, you never have to go to flip in mtnavoda.com and get recurred or fecurred, and then go to Hollard or Discovery, do the exact same thing for insurance, do the exact same thing for, when you buy a car. All you have to do is now saying. This is my verification with Bank A. With one API, I'm now buying a SIM card. Please query through consent technology that, that I am who I say I am. Boom, here's your SIM card. Feek is ridiculous, eh? It's crazy. So it's using a technology that the founder didn't know existed for other industries and making it work through a large bank for multiple customers. It's mm. another example. Mm-hmm. Um and the third, uh, a third example of really interesting technology that we saw was in um, invoicing. And remember, all these problems. And I talk about te- te- the reason I love technology is is not because I'm a geek, but is because technology has a unique availability, especially digital technology, to have massive social impact in South Africa and Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's so important on our continent. Mm-hmm. The moment you use technology to scale you can create a significant amount of direct and indirect jobs. And there and there isn't a better example of this in a company called Invoice Exchange. Now, um, they so Invoice Exchange essentially is is the, the practice of forward paying someone based on an invoice or a purchase order that a customer has to a client. So let's say hypothetically you're a small business mm-hmm. um, and you have uh, a purchase order from Telcom. Right, so Telcom is a JC listed AAA company, and you have an invoice for a hundred thousand rand that Telcom owes you. Yep. Now, I'm, I'm just I'm not picking on Telcom here, but just right. So That's Telcom, so, <laughs> so Telcom typically pays you in two months or three months, but you, as a small business, pay your employees every two weeks or pay your uh, your rent every month. So there's a huge mismatch in your cash coming in and cash going out. Gotcha. Right? Yep. So what does invoice factoring do? And, and invoice factoring is the second oldest industry in the world after prostitution. No way. It's true. But so, so, <laughs> so it's not innovative. Fun fact. Yes. <laughs> of the day. So what they do is you get people, institutions, asset managers, etc., to buy invoices from a startup or, or an SME. And because the invoice payee is a AAA rated company, there is zero risk or close to zero risk of them defaulting in it. They literally say, okay, Telcom owes you 100,000 Rand. 
I'm going to buy your invoice from you. And instead of you waiting for three months to get your 100,000 rand, I'm going to give you 95,000 rand tomorrow. And as a startup, you're like, I'll take that. Yeah. Right? I keep 5%. And in three months, I get 100,000 rand from Telcom. So I've made a 5% return in three months, which is 20% annually at almost no risk. Crazy. Right? As yeah. an investor. And that's way above money market. Way. The double double money market, if not triple money market. Right? Yeah. And as a retailer or as a big corporate, what am I doing? I'm still able to continue paying my suppliers ridiculously late. So everyone benefits. Yeah. Now, this has been going on for centuries. But what this company did was said, there is a risk here of fake invoices, of bad credit, of someone not saying what they said they would do. So you said it's invoice number 4876, but it's actually 4867, mm-hmm. and the whole thing goes away. It's solving that cash flow problem, eh? It is. But what he did, the company, is created an eBay model where everything was digitally verified in an, in an open exchange platform where they used, I mean, technically SAP and Oracle to verify every single invoice. And you could bid on who wants to buy what invoice when. And the moment you use tech and software to do it, it suddenly made everything a lot more reliable. As a result now, on average, 30% of SMEs in South Africa go bankrupt every day because they get paid late. And they now are able to solve that problem and create hundreds of thousands of jobs because your cash flow situation is better. Crazy. And a tech company with literally two founders has solved this. Mm. And they've now tested this solution with banks and insurance companies. And it's a great example of how innovation can work with large corporates. Yeah. Let's talk about that. You, we were talking off air about open innovation uh, systems. Yeah. What are they and what are its implications for entrepreneurs? So open innovation ecosystems is, is basically a fancy way of saying for innovation to work, you have to have corporates, institutions, startups, and talent coexist and co-work together. Um, the program we ran for Tech Lab Africa was an example of that, but one of the drawbacks of that was it was one bank that had first right of refusal to work with all these innovative companies. What I believe in is in a world going forward, if you have an innovative product or technology, you shouldn't be limited with respect to which corporate you can work with. Mm. You want to be able to innovate in an open ecosystem where if you have, let's say, let's give the example of fintech. If you have a really cool way of being able to um, pay for something with your, with your mobile phone or have an insurance product that's entirely mobile, you should be able to offer that solution to any insurance company or any bank and literally may the best horse win hmm. versus I'm restricted to doing this with just one bank. Because what, what, what then happens is you have the, the big brother effect. I dictate terms to you. Yeah. And I, and, 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 and I don't like that. So an open innovation ecosystem is literally a level playing field where innovative startups come to the table. You have corporates that want to invest or work commercially with innovative companies, and it's literally may the best horse win, and 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 that's what, and that was the genesis of startup bootcamp coming to Africa. Is we took what worked best with the Barclays Tech Lab Africa program and said, let's make this open to multiple corporates, multiple institutions, and help startups. And that was 
the genesis of Startup Bootcamp coming to Africa. Okay. Which I'm very excited about. That's great. I'm so glad you got onto Startup Bootcamp because that was my next question. So let's talk about Startup Bootcamp. So it's obviously a unique proposition. What can startups expect? So from the time of like application, what does the actual program consist of? Like what's the first two weeks like and then so on and so forth? What does it culminate in? Yeah. Uh, what's that experience? Yeah, so I'll just take a step back and, and just, you know, um, give you a perspective on what and what um, an accelerator is. So a lot of you have heard of the terms incubator and accelerator used interchangeably. Let me get the facts straight. There are close to a thousand incubators on the African continent. And what an incubator typically does is it gets a bunch of young companies, tech companies, non-tech companies together in a room. They usually give you co-working space, which is important. Mm -hmm. They give you access to lectures and mentors that usually come in once a week, twice a week to give you some advice. A Tuesday evening from five to seven, you know, you've got your coffee, your pizza and your pitching. And it's very low touch. Um, no investments are made and no equity is given up. And there is no big demo day pitch to investors. It's helping you grow and scale your business um, through the help of people in the community. That's what, an, that's what an, um, an incubator is. An accelerator, on the other hand, is very different. So most of the companies that you're familiar with right now, like Uber and Airbnb and Twitter and Dropbox, etc., have come out of what's called a three to six month intense accelerator program. What now an accelerator program is essentially you as a startup or co-founders in startups stopping whatever you're doing to accelerate your company or your startup through three months of intense mentoring, coaching, access to top content. And what I, what I mean by that is legal, IP, tax, accounting, digital media, product development, marketing, sales, literally every single aspect of your business is fast-tracked or accelerated, which is where the, where the word comes sure. in, in three months, resulting in what's called a demo day at the end of that period where you are put in front of hundreds of potential investors to see how they can fund you to further grow you. And that is accompanied by an alumni program where you can access top quality mentors and investors even post your program. As a further jolt, you are typically given anywhere from $10,000 to $20,000 upfront in exchange for a certain amount of equity. It could be anywhere from 5 to 10% um, to be part of this program. And that's essentially how uh, uh, the concept of an accelerator. Um, corporate accelerators are exactly like that, but with one extra element, which is the end goal is not just for you to scale and get investment, but it's for you to sign commercial agreements with corporates, which helps you, especially from a South African context. So if you can get out of an accelerator and have your clients as insurance companies, retailers, and telcos that can further market your product to other consumers in exchange for either a license fee, um, a transactional revenue, or equity, even better. Can we talk about equity for a second? Sure, of course. When, in your experience, is the right time to give away equity in your startup? Um, 
so equity is a tricky thing, and I think it's 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 very important for people to know. I mean, if 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 you would ask the average person in the street, what is more expensive, equity or debt? Nine out of ten would say debt is more expensive because I'm paying a huge amount of interest. Not true. Mm-hmm. So equity is the most expensive way to finance your business. It's because, for obvious reasons, whatever you give up, any amount of profits that you make is is forever given away to a third party that invests in your business. But at the same time, in in an economy like South Africa or any emerging market, it's debt financing is extremely hard to come by. Um, for risky businesses. Yeah. So equity, so typically a startup's life cycle consists of raising, of, of, well, of, of bootstrapping, which is raising initial money um, yourself, friends, family, and fools. Um, the three Fs. The, the three Fs. <laughs> you then typically have what's called <clears throat> an angel round, which is when you have, and most people here know what, what angel investors are, but angel investors essentially bring three things to a startup, and in decreasing importance. The most important thing that an angel investor brings to a startup is knowledge of an industry. So take, for example, a a really innovative digital media startup that's doing something really quirky in the way advertising is done, just as an example. They They would be humbled to have a media giant like a Chris Becker, for example, from Naspers, be their angel because they because he would introduce them to concepts in media and marketing that they would never have access to. So it's knowledge and industry expertise. Number two, an angel investor brings networks, um, which is if you're looking to open the doors with Naspers or with a large insurance company or whatever the case may be, it's literally I will give you phone numbers and emails of people that can get you meetings and that you're able to pitch your idea to. So networks is, is, is extremely important. And last but not least, this is a big misconception, is money. So angel investors do not, do not actually give a lot of money to startups. What they bring are the first two things. An angel round, typically you do not give away more than 10% equity because it's, it's risk capital. Um, and keep in mind that when funding happens, there is a concept called dilution that happens in every round. So whenever you raise more and more and more money, your existing or previous round investors dilute their stake to make way for larger investors. So, so you're almost buying it back effectively. You're you're buying it back effectively. Now, one of the one of the biggest hurdles in South African investing historically has been because there are so many few perceived good deals to invest in, it's just perceived, the few venture capital funds that are out there tend to ask for large equity stakes to control a company. It's very common to hear of startups giving away 30%, 40% equity to a venture capital fund because there really are no other options. Now, uh, it's a very simple analogy do you want to be? Uh, do you want to have ten percent of a billion rand company, or do you want to have ninety percent of a million rand company? Yeah, and that's literally an investor mind shift that needs to happen, mm-hmm. and this happens a lot in the states. The, the the other thing to remember is because you raise when you raise multiple rounds of funding, at some point, if the company founders have a very small stake in the company. What is their incentive to work hard and promote what they're doing if they own so little of a company? Very little. Very little. 
So if you look at most of the top performing startups in the world, the founders have had at least 51% equity up until they reach their third or fourth round of funding. Up until or sometimes even up to private equity and an IPO stage. It's probably a good, it's probably a good, a good segue into me talking about the ways startups can exit. Yeah, cool. So, globally speaking, there are anywhere from four to five ways in which small businesses and then startups, especially tech startups, can can exit. Um, the 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 most common way is for a startup to raise venture capital funding. That's typically called your seed round, your angel round, series A, series B, series C, series D, etc. So you typically, as, a, as an investor early on, you make money if your startup gets funded in successive rounds of funding, but more importantly, the evaluation increases. So if you're worth $100 today and someone invests a million dollars in you, your valuation does not automatically increase just because you've gotten money. Your valuation increases if you've done something with the money. So there is a concept called pre-money and post-money valuation. So if your valuation today is, let's say, a million rand, that's your pre-money valuation, and someone gives you a million rand, your post-money valuation is now two million rand, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you've done bugger all with that money, and you've actually lost money with that investment, and someone now says, I'm going to fund you more, your pre-money valuation in your next round of funding does not always equal your post-money valuation in the previous round. So for example, in this particular case, if you've done fuck all with that money, your pre-money valuation in your next round might actually be one and a half million, not two million. So you've actually lost Lost. money for your investor. So this misconception that if you get more and more funding, you're, you're more valued, absolutely not true. It just so happens that most smart companies do something useful with the investment they get. Invest in R&D, invest in marketing, invest in sales, invest in hiring smart people. So the company's value increases with every round of funding. Hmm. So that's typically how investors make money through secondary, tertiary rounds of funding. That's, gotcha. that's, that's the most common way. Number two is if you are... Um, a stable company that, that's churning out regular, stable, positive cash flows and are able to pay dividends, investors can make the money through dividends. And that's traditionally how a lot of investors in South Africa expect to fund company because profits are so important in South Africa. You have conservative investors that invest in companies that have high growth, but they force them to be profitable and ironically constrain their growth. This sounds counterintuitive. It's called called cash burn. That's called cash burn, right? So funny enough, in the States or in mature economies, if you have startup A, startup B, both do the exact same thing. Startup B is very profitable, and startup A is not so profitable, but startup A is growing like a flipping meteorite. Yeah. Investors will back startup A. Because profits don't mean anything in the startup world. It's customers and customer acquisition mm. and scale. Yeah, Zirtual had that problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so that's that's the idea of – so the moment you expect as an investor startups to pay you dividends, 
you're literally shooting yourself in the foot. Mm. So dividends is is one way of 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 getting your money back. Number three is what's called the management buyout, which is essentially you start doing so well that you, as the company management, buys out your investors, saying, "Thank you for your money. We're now very profitable. We want you guys out." So we'll buy you out. That doesn't happen that often in South Africa, but it's a way. Number four, and which is the holy grail of getting a, a, an investment in, is an IPO, which is a listing on a stock exchange, which rarely happens, but it does. And if it does, you can retire and live. When was the last one in South Africa? Do you Goodness know? me, I actually can't even think of it, dude. Well, that just the goes last, to show, right? The last IPO of a tech company in South Africa. I I don't know. I'm actually going to research that and put it in the show notes. Yeah. If I, mean, I can find it and then I'll share it with it. you as well. Put it out in a tweet or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, mix it should have been that. Yeah. I mean, but what a sub story, eh? But I can speak for two seconds on mix it. I mean, mix it is a classic example of a startup that just failed because they work like a traditional conservative company. A traditional company, when they grow, what do you do? You hire staff, you open up a branch, you get salespeople, you build your systems, you get your lawyers, and it's and it's clunky. That's how corporates grow. That's how Sunlam grows. That's how Vodacom grows. Yeah. That's not how a startup grows. Yeah. The funny thing is, Mixit had the technology of WhatsApp mm-hmm. eight years before WhatsApp even came. Well, that's crazy to think of, eh? It's crazy, right? Mixit happened to be a South African company, and what did they do? They were initially purely a messaging platform entirely over data. But they didn't stop with that. They wanted to have every single bone muscle you could think. They wanted to have, we're going to have voice, we're going to have videos, we're going to have even fucking educational content on our platform. As a result, and we're going to open an office in a branch in Cape Town and Joburg and flip in Namibia and, you know, nine South African, uh, African countries. And it just took forever. Mm. What does WhatsApp do? WhatsApp <laughs> strolls in and says, I like this messaging over data concept. Let's roll with it. Simple. Yeah. And what do they do? They scaled like crazy. And within months of launching, had millions and millions of customers that entirely dwarfed Mixit and Mixit collapsed. Mixit should have been WhatsApp. Yeah. But they focused too much on features and I want to I want to be the best it, it it's so not lean. Mm. And lean companies that focus on a very specific niche, mm. niche, sorry, and scale quickly are the ones that succeed. Yeah. So sorry, back to the and the last way, so IPOs is one thing. And the last way of making an exit is an M&A or a trade sale, where you sell yourself to a large corporate, which happens a lot. So in, 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 in mature ecosystems, the most common way of making money is secondary buyouts, secondary capital raises, venture capital, to a lesser extent M&A and, and IPOs after that. In South Africa, M&A or trade sales is probably the only way consistently where you can have exits. Now, now, now that's a double-edged sword. Now, think about it. If if corporates want to buy startups for the wrong reasons, what typically happens? They offer a price that a startup that is just enough for a startup founder to want to cash out without thinking bigger picture. Mm. Think about this. 
So the two startups that everyone will think of today that are super awesome are Uber and Airbnb, right? Now, imagine if Uber and Airbnb happened to have been South African companies. Think about it for a second. Take, for, take for example, Airbnb. If Airbnb was a South African company, I can tell you now guaranteed, within a year of launching, you would have had these big corporates. You would have the Pam Goldings, the Rawsons, the Flippin... Hilton's Hilton saying, hey, I'll buy you out for 10 million rand, 20 million rand. And you as the founders of Airbnb, you can pocket a good 10 million rand and you can buy that house in Camps. It's mm. on me. Mm. So it's a quick exit. If, if, if Uber were here, I'm pretty sure Transnet would have bought them out or large transportation company or, or taxi hub or whatever. So the problem is because there's so little risk capital in South Africa, entrepreneurs are drawn by quick wins. And a quick win for them is a large corporate buying them out and them cashing out. But they refuse and fail to see the bigger picture. So what entrepreneurs need here is vision. I want to be a global company serving hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. And I'm not going to cop out and sell to a large corporate because it gives me a quick win. And it's not entirely their fault. It's the ecosystem being educated about, I can be better than this. And that's why Mixit failed. So it's, it's, it's understanding. I mean, a, a lot of cases, large corporates will buy a company purely for getting access to a few additional clients. Yeah. The, there was, I mean, the story I tell sometimes about a, about a company called Rubybox. Rubybox essentially takes samples of leading cosmetics companies in the world, L'Oreal, uh, Subscription Lattrix, box service? Subscription box service, probably heard of it. And they market it, marketed it at 200 rand a month. Once every two weeks, a package goes out to women in townships, informal settlements, and sort of middle-class South Africa mm-hmm. who could never afford to go and buy original L'Oreal eyeliner. But you have a sample coming in a nicely packaged red box that you can test out. The cost of the company, zero, Mm -hmm. because they get these products pretty much for free from the big brands so they can access the bottom of the pyramid. And they were a very successful business. A few years into running the business, they raised capital from a venture capital fund in Cape Town and a few years later were bought out by Naspers. Now, why do you think Naspers would want to buy a beauty-in-a-box startup. Yeah, because that's almost the antithesis of what they do as a bread-and-butter proposition, yeah. But think about it. Now they suddenly have access to a couple of hundred thousand women that they could never have gotten a hold of that they can now sell DSTV accounts to. Clever. Right? Mm. But they're buying it for the wrong reasons. So as long as they offer a price that's just enough to make the entrepreneur say, cool, I'll take that offer, they've done something. Now, what's happened now, that entrepreneur is now an employee of Naspers, and all her entrepreneurial dreams are squashed. It's, it, it's no surprise that that, that that company today is a complete dog. Yeah, congratulations. You have an earn-out agreement. Exactly. Hey. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why it's important as an entrepreneur to be aware of, you know, what a good deal is, what a, what a bad deal is, and the risk of cashing out too early 
and not losing sight of what your real vision is. And that's why it's important for the venture capital industry investors to help fund entrepreneurs so they don't have to resort to quick sellouts mm. and not realize their vision. And then people complain of why South Africa has no companies like Uber or Twitter or Pinterest coming out of it. It's because people aren't allowed to be visionary. Yeah, that's such a great point, mate. Such a great point. Yeah. I want to talk about funding. Sure. How are you guys funded? And I wanted to explore with you the role of enterprise development capital mm -hmm. as it relates to accelerators slash incubators. So, for instance, uh, there's this thing called BEE. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> Which is a very real thing. Yep. And so what that means for our listeners that may not know is that I think it's 3%, 3 to 5% of yep. their turnover they need to spend on effectively enterprise development. Correct. And so... So what is in, like Elon Reyes is a very interesting model where he basically makes it easy for uh, big corporates to spend their enterprise development capital. So how are you funded and is it an enterprise development uh, sort of related uh, workflow or stream? So enterprise development isn't, um, I mean, so, so you shouldn't view enterprise development in the same, uh, or you shouldn't view, view ED as separate from venture capital funding or funding accelerator simply because enterprise development is a way of supporting um, small businesses, supply chain funding um, that historically has been confused with grant funding or donations or free money with no strings attached, um, which in my personal opinion is, is not the best thing for this country. Simply because the moment you, you give an SME free money and say you're a recipient of our enterprise development funding, go and make some business, the incentive to use that money in the right way is, is not there. So one of the things that, so if, so, so if, if, if you were to, I mean, you asked me before how we are funded. So Startup Bootcamp is funded by corporates. Uh, corporate sponsorship programs where corporates put in anywhere from a million rand to four million rand a year to be able to access 400 to 500 really innovative companies on the African continent that they can choose to work with from a supply chain perspective, from an investment perspective, um, from any perspective really. And part of that money is used to directly invest in seed rounds in these companies. And the other part is just to run operations. I mean, a lot of um, startups need legal advice, tech advice. They need, they need websites built. They need apps built. They need digital marketing. They need social media. That has to be paid by someone. So once you get corporates, and a lot of it is, by the way, ED money, but it's not ED money that's given to a startup directly. It's given to a program because the moment you give someone a million rand and say, go and fly, they have no idea what to, what do, to with do with it. it. Yeah. But you give it to a program and say, we know that the fair price for you to develop an app is X. Take a step back. Without knowing what the customer product market fit is for your technology – you shouldn't even be building an app. You should be building a basic wireframe, a Google form to test out whether or not there is a demand for what you do. So 
It's the maturity and understanding of how you use enterprise development money that a program like Startup Bootcamp or any accelerator program brings. You know, you may be approached by big shot law firms to say, we can do your IP for you, your trademarking for you, your copyright, your this, your that, but you may not need that. So a program like an accelerator program, like Startup Bootcamp or whatever, provides you the right guidance as to how you can use OPEX funding in the right way, what you need money for, where money should be spent to help you grow as quickly as possible. Because more often than not, startup founders have no idea how to run businesses. Mm. That's a big problem we have, man. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's the the creators and then there's the guys that need to manage it. It's that dynamic that you find so frequently in adolescent companies where they're making the transition from entrepreneur-owned yeah. to management owned. There was actually a very good TEDx talk about a year ago that I watched saying that every company in the world, but startup specifically, need to have three types of people. Um, the entrepreneur, uh, a manager, and a technician. Mm-hmm. And that is, so, so the entrepreneur is your visionary. Your entrepreneur is your guy, like Jeff Bezos, that says, I want to be the world's largest bookstore. Amazon, mm-hmm. or I want to be, you know, the world's marketplace for buying and selling products, eBay. That's your visionary, right? And that person, he or she, must literally just fly, right? Mm. You've got your manager, which people now call a CEO or an operator, that has that manages people, structures, things. The manager is 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 often also represented by um, someone that, that, that understands finance and structures and um, operations and things like that, but not strategy. And last but not least, you have your technicians, which in, in most startups are your, the head of development, your VP of engineering. CTOs. Like CTOs. Yeah. Right? And, and here's a controversial part, is you don't want the three of them to be friends or dabble in what the other person does. You want them to almost be running their own things separately, given enough of um, uh, freedom to do what they do best. And this is a, and this is a slight caveat because if 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 you, if they're allowed to do whatever they want at whatever time they want with free reins, you can see a startup going to complete ruin. You have to have a board. Mm. You've got to have an independent governing body of advisors that keeps them in check without interfering, which is why it's... I mean, how many startups do you know that actually have a board? I mean, it's... I can't think of any. Or very few. I mean, Very I few. I don't meet startup owners or founders and go, hey... You know, how was your board meeting this week? It you know what I mean? It doesn't happen. It's two co-founders and they hire someone that can do their books. I mean, people have seen accountants as CFOs. I mean, how can an, account- an accountant be a CFO? Mm. You know what Zirtual did, which I found amazing? Yeah. Um, I tried to get Maureen Kate on the, on the show a while back. Mm. Unfortunately, she didn't pitch few times very poor from her, if I'm honest. Um, but um, she outsourced her board. She outsourced it. Huh. There's a company in Silicon Valley specifically for startups yeah. where they have, uh, you can basically hire like a CEO, I don't even know what, what the titles would be, but it's a board function. Hmm. 
and there was it was her and one other guy, and that was the board. And they grew to a four hundred million dollar a year company in terms of their run rate, huh. um, cash burn. The point we made earlier, yeah. and literally over a weekend, the company went bust. Goodness me! Yeah, it was crazy. That's the story. I think. Yeah, I think it's just very important to have unbiased view from board of directors that can tell you when your entrepreneur, your visionary, is dreaming big and going off the queue, off the cuff, when your technician is developing way too much products that is not relevant to the market, when your manager is being a micromanager, and just things like that. You need to have an independent voice of people that are that do this either because they, they want to help the industry grow. And usually your investors at least one or two of them become part of your board because it's in their best interest to make sure that the company utilizes its funding properly and is and, and it isn't mismanaged. So having a mentor and an investor on your board in addition to the management is super important. And that needs to happen early on. You can't wait until you're, you know... Um, 50 people. No, you can't. it's too late. It's too late. late. Yeah. Exactly. Um, can I just pick up on the funding... Sure. Points again. So let's say that you get five million rand from five of the big banks. Okay, so that yeah. gives you twenty-five million. Now you have say you know three hundred applicants to the startup bootcamp program, mm-hmm. hypothetically, and you choose ten. Yeah. Okay. Now you mentioned the example where the uh, founder saying, "Well, actually, I think I need an app." But then in the program, a mentor or someone such as yourself comes in and says, "Hey, dude, listen. Actually, you only need." a mobile site, not an app because mobile sites have greater reach or whatever the strategic rationale is. Sure. Now, the guys are giving up 5% or whatever that single-digit percentage is in exchange for the $20,000, right? As an example. As an example, yeah. yeah. Now, let's say that that mobile site's going to cost half a million. Are you funding that half a million as well? Um. No. Um, so that money would come over and above the initial funding they received. So so most startups that we get into the program aren't at the idea stage. They at least have an MVP or, or, or a prototype mm-hmm. and have some traction because we believe it's easier to work with startups that have some traction than those that are completely um, um, out the cradle. Um, funding for building tech would typically come outside of the program uh and 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 which which is why we we invite investors not just at demo day but also during the accelerator to to come and take a look at uh startups that need funding even before they graduate from a program so the reason why the 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 $20,000 exists is the idea is not to build a perfect company in three months. No one's expecting you to do so. Yeah. But you have to have just enough traction to be able to sell your product, find out what your niche is, and be able to scale as quickly as you can and use your operating cash flow to then keep iterating. I'll give you a, actually um a good example of that. It's a company called Sweep South. 
and domestically, yes, that's right. the two competitors. They're like the Uber and Airbnb of the cleaning service market. <laughs> African chef, African problems. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, so I've been doing domestically quite well. So when domestically started, their idea was they would want to provide more jobs to domestic workers, nannies, babysitters, you name it, and be able to provide them not just work, but work at a fair wage. So they, as the domestic, would set their rates for what their time was worth, depending on things like how far they had to travel to get to work, the place they were working at. So arguably, you know, if you're a domestic worker doing work in Camps Bay versus doing work in Rondebosch versus doing work in Mitchell's Plain, you would have the right to say, I'm sorry, I'm going to be charging 400 rand a day to be in Kemp's Bay versus 200 in Rondebosch or whatever. Yeah. Now, the idea was eventually to build a fully functional app that could link domestic workers with clientele. Now, to build an app of the quality of Airbnb or Uber costs millions of rands. We're talking three to four million rand, if not more, right? And a lot of startups that have failed have over-invested in building technology without sussing out their market first. So what Domestly did was they lean iterated their process where initially when they were starting off, all they wanted to do is to build a... a um, a network of cleaners and clients that would scale as quickly as possible using minimum tech. So what I mean by that was the initial customers was literally people calling in saying, I need someone at this time for these days. We'll find you one. An SMS is sent out to a prospective cleaner with times that is that SMS back. So initially the whole thing was just done through an Excel spreadsheet and SMSs. Mm. That was it. MVP, baby. MVP. That then moved from SMSs to WhatsApp, to phone calls, through a website. And that happened over a period of months. Now, they've now got a 1,000-plus users, both on the client and domestic side. Mm -hmm. They have spent minimal amount of money on tech, but they've built a viral network of followers and fans. Now, they can go to a funder and say, how's 2 million rand in funding? I've got all this traction that I built with a flipping wireframe website and SMSs. That's proof of concept. Yeah. Now, how's 2 million rand to help me build a fully functional app? The likelihood of that VC saying, sure, here's the money, is so much more than before they had that. So that sort of lean startup methodology is so important from a concept perspective before you launch fancy apps or fancy platforms. And I think that mindset is important to to bring more angel investing into South Africa from within, not from overseas, from within. So we're actually building something called the Lean Iterator with three friends of mine that... Is Roger one of those Roger. three musketeers? Yes, you are. I know Roger you know well. Roger, yeah. yeah. 
Roger Norton, David Kempe, Philip Kerfko, Philip who runs Startup Bootcamp with me and myself. So what what we're essentially saying is an accelerator is for companies that have an MVP, that have some traction and are now looking to scale quickly. But what about the guys that just have ideas? How do you take ideas and convert them into scalable companies? And that's working lean. And that's essentially come up with your idea once every couple of weeks and we literally, literally kill assumptions. We figure out what your value proposition is. Business model canvas, lean startup, all that stuff that everyone knows of. Mm -hmm. Product market fit. How do you interview customers? How do you do market research? Literally, we, we slay assumptions and help you quickly iterate through a series of lean experiments. So how do you ideate, validate, do experiments, low-cost experiments, pivot, and literally do things that can help you figure out how you reduce someone's pain as a customer or increase your gain. And that's the precursor to being part of an accelerator. Awesome, awesome, yeah. Um, and we're actually giving all of our listeners, that's you guys, um, a free ticket um, to each and every one of you. All you have to do is be in Cape Town. So sorry if you're not in Cape Town, but maybe the program will be coming up here soon. Yep. Cool. It'll be coming up here as well. So uh, all you guys need to do is when you get to the, uh, it's every Wednesday, every second Wednesday? Every second Wednesday. Yeah, cool. So every second Wednesday. Starting this Wednesday. And this Wednesday. Yeah. We're in Cape Town? It's at uh, currently at the Standard Bank Future Lab um, offices at two here in Grot Street, which is the Standard Bank Towers awesome. in, in the middle of Cape Town. Okay. So when you get to the doors... And there needs to be armies of you guys, otherwise I'm going to look bad. <laughs> but uh, just all you have to say is when you get to the to the door is digital kung fu send me. Yeah, yeah, and they'll let you in, and that's a, a 900 bucks saving in your pocket, guys. So boom. How about them apples? Awesome, <laughs> dude! I'd love to shift gears just for a second sure, and actually explore a little bit more about you personally. Sure, it's been an absolute treasure trove of uh, insights you've shared with us thus far. But uh, this is the final part of the interview. I like to tear it up as rapid fire questions, but sure. invariably some are like quite sticky. But let's have a bit of fun. You ready? Cool, cool. So, if you were to put your entrepreneurial journey onto a billboard, mm. what would that billboard say? Jeez. I'd probably say from success to significance. And what I mean was I've I've had a relatively successful career as a banker, as an engineer. But what I'm doing now is to me more significant than any money that I've made before. So I'd say success to significance is what I'd say. Amazing. Great. Next question for you. What three things are you not? Great at cooking, um, handyman stuff, um, swimming. <laughs> awesome. So you're not the Michael Phelps then, are you? I'm certainly am not. <laughs> certainly am not. Awesome. Cool. Um, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? That's a tough one. Um, People ask me a lot about my background and, and where I come from, which is because it's it's so mystical. <laughs> but people never seem to ask me about um, my vision and what legacy I want to leave um, before I peg. And I love talking about it. What is your over, vision? What is your legacy? 
it's to create a network of 5,000, if not 10,000 impactful startups across Africa that are doing amazing things, commercially viable things, but solving problems in education, healthcare, food security, climate change, pretty much high impact things, but being solved through commercial, commercially viable means. I would love to be able to do that by investing and mentoring startups all across, across Africa. And this whole overemphasis on let's get rid of poverty, let's get rid of this. You can't get rid of that unless you innovate and do things creatively. And I just think it's about if, 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 if I can convince large corporates and institutions to get into that game and think above and beyond just short term benefits, I think I would have done quite a bit, quite yeah. my part. And that's what I, what, what legacy I'd like to leave. It's a very compelling vision. Thank you. Very compelling. I'll be watching you closely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but funny enough, my biggest passion outside of all of this is actually music. Yeah, you did release an iTunes album, didn't you? I did, yeah. So I uh, also have a bit of a musical background. I ran a, a record label for about five years, uh, produced huh. my uh, my house music, you know, all that nice. stuff. Yeah. So um, you can also find some of my stuff on iTunes. I'd love so to, yeah. Send me a link. I'd love to. Are you sure you're into electronic music? Yeah. Of Are course. you? There, there, really? there, there's a time and place for everything. So not <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a father now, so that ship sailed, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Cool. So what keeps you up at night? You know, there is a very conservative, boring side to me. And what keeps me up is thinking about, I've got three kids. Um, thinking of, it's more of a somber note, thinking of the world that we're leaving to our kids. And you've got kids as well. Yeah. It's all the, all the shit that's happening in our country and the world. Like I see, I'm, I'm a big political junkie. Um, I love debating about stuff and what's happening. I mean, wars and stuff like that. But when I see shit like the stuff we're seeing in Syria, where hundreds of thousands of kids and women and men are being massacred every day because of some ideology, ISIS and Russia and the US. And I see, you know, just man-made problems that are completely avoidable happening because of greed and insecurities and ideologies. I just feel like the world we're leaving our kids is just sad. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I feel sorry that our kids and grandkids have to grow up in a world where they are exposed to this. I think the world was a lot simpler. As much as I love technology, absolutely love technology, I feel by making the world more connected, we've actually become more disconnected from each mm, other. Absolutely true. And I, and that's what keeps me up. I, I think of, I'm so happy that I will be dead in 100 years. <laughs> that I won't have to look at us working as robots and everything controlled by technology where we've lost the ability. I mean, when's the last time you got a letter from someone? Yeah, I haven't. Well, unless you buy something from Yappy Chef, by the way, yeah. you can actually get handwritten thank you notes. <laughs> yeah, so that's what keeps me up. I, I'm, I hope that my kids and grandkids and kids and friends of them will will somehow have that internal intimate connection with people because I feel people are losing that and that's what I and stuff around fees may fall protests and I just something's got to give 
Yeah. And I, I worry about this country. I mean, I love this country. It's become my adopted country now. But I, there is a serious problem around poverty and around inequality. But you can't, you can't give from an empty cup. So you can't expect people to be given handouts and be treated because they think they deserve something. I, I just like to see a world where people are empowered by themselves not by expecting things to be given to them. But I do understand the pain of what it is to, to not be, you know. Privileged. Privileged. And that's what keeps me up. Okay. So. How do you balance what you do and your family? It's one of the hardest things ever. Um, I think it's important to to just know your priorities. Um, my wife and I always argue about this, but I've come to realize now that no matter what you do from a work perspective, at the end of the day, it could be your vision, it could be work, but you know, on your on your deathbed, who's going to be there for you? Not your managers, not your employees, not your investors. It's going to be your family. Mm-hmm. So it's important to know that you have to try and spend quality time with people that are near and dear to you, not just lots of time. Mm. Us men often equate time to quantity. So if I spend a lot of time with my kids, my family, my friends, I'm okay. But it it doesn't have to be. And I've learned this the hard way myself. I used to work like a dog and I wouldn't have time for family and friends and kids. Mm. But it's about when you're with them, being present. And I've learned this the hard way. And Mm. I think it's important to... You know, dropping your kids off at school or you know, going out date night with your spouse. or It's about being present and being impeccable. <clears throat> so ironic that you mentioned that point about being present because literally two shows ago, I've got this old mate of mine, Bruce. Yeah, uh, He lives in the Caribbean on an island and he runs a, a seven-figure business basically doing relationship consulting. Mm. And, um, and we were talking about that exact thing. And it's like as an entrepreneur, it's like, well, I don't have time. If I, you know, I can't put my wife first or my relationship first or my kids first because I don't have the time. You know, um, and he was saying like two things. One was like, if you don't have the time, ask why you don't have the time. And he said the second thing is uh, the biggest problem that he hears, or the, the feedback that he hears from wives, is yep. that their husbands or that run businesses are just not in the room. Yep. Yeah. So it's so ironic you mentioned that exact point. And you know what? There is something that I read recently that I'm that, that I'm slowly getting into. It's 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 from um, something called. Toltec philosophy. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's, got, but it's something called the Four Agreements. Have you heard of that before? I have actually, yeah. Rings By a bell. Call, called uh, Don Miguel Reuse. And I'm not, listen, I'm, I'm not a, f- uh, uh, you know, a cult follower of it at all, but it, it, it's just something very simple. It says, the Four Agreements, be, be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions. And always do your best. Yeah. Just Amazing. Four simple things if you can live your life by, it's a lot easier than what you think it is. So Okay. Next question for you. When you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? Richard Branson. Why? Um, successful to me is someone that is able to to realize his or her vision, not dwell on it, and quickly move on and do something else bigger and better. Richard Branson went from record labels 
to airplanes to entrepreneurship institutes to running blockchain bitcoin summits i mean there's nothing the guy hasn't done yeah another another person i think of is elon musk our very own elon musk i mean how many people can can solve payment problems run electric cars <laughs> renewable energy through solar city land a rocket back onto earth an interorbital rocket and still not get bored and now wants to go to mars yeah so success is not success is a continuous iterative thing you do something perfect it move on and do something else and those are my th- the two people that i that i look up to a lot cool when you hear the word punchable who do you think of and Jack why Zuma. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, listen, he's just a doer. Sorry, <laughs> I picked up some, I, I picked up some Afrikaans recently, but and sorry, Donald, congratulations, <laughs> Donald Trump and Jacob Zuma are the two people that I would punch the most yeah. in several parts of your of your yeah. of your anatomy. Um, just yeah, um, to me, there's so I have a thing about about dumb people and evil people. Now, I'll give you an example. George Bush was just an idiot. He was a dumb person. That doesn't bother me. I could actually have a beer with him. But Dick Cheney is an evil man mm. who actually maliciously does things knowing that they're doing something maliciously. Uh, Donald Trump is a genuinely evil, malicious, conceited son of a bitch. Mm. And that's what angers me. Is yeah. when people do things deliberately to hurt others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's let's stop there. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> we're trying to end on a high note, here, pal. <laughs> but it's funny. I, f- I think I asked that question, and it's always the same answer. Hey, probably for like I'm probably not even shitting you now. Probably about the last ten guests all put Donald Trump after that. Yeah, question. not surprised. Yeah, yeah. Not surprised. Cool. Uh, two more questions, sure. Nate, and then I'll let you run off to your 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 event. Yeah. Um, if you could go back in time to yourself as a twenty year old, you having coffee. You're obviously like this, but with you now as sure. a twenty year old. <laughs> sure. What one piece of advice about business or life would you give yourself? To not chase, to not chase money, but to chase a vision. Because the moment you chase your vision and you implement that with clockwork precision, the money will follow you. It's if, 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 if the only thing that you're looking to make in life is money, you won't make money. But if you're looking to do something visionary with the meaning and purpose and surround yourself with a team of people that can help you implement that goal, then money will come. There's actually a saying that I hear a lot, which I can remember now saying, if you walk into a room and you find yourself as the smartest person in that room, you're in the wrong room. Mm. Because you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. So <laughs> Remember that, guys. <laughs> Last question for you, buddy. Um, what's your why as an entrepreneur? What gets you out of bed in the morning? This might sound a little corny, but um, I genuinely believe that everything I do and the people around me do 
I need to figure out a way in which it impacts the broader population. Economically, socially, emotionally, there has to be purpose in what you do. So you could be a startup that's doing some cool fintech thing, or you could just be someone working in a corporate, but whatever you do, there has to be purpose behind it. Um, and that purpose could be your wife and your kids. That purpose could be giving back to the planet. That purpose could be um, anything really. But once you define why you do what you do, it could be my thing is I want to leave a legacy or it could be I want to leave a good inheritance for my kids. But whatever you do, don't just do it because it's the right thing to do or it's what everyone else does. If you want to, if you want to spend your Friday afternoon surfing versus working, do it. But do it because it fulfills your soul. And that's my why. And on that bombshell... It's time to end your time in the hot seat today. Zachariah George, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to be able to really get to know you a bit better. It's been really incredible and I'd love to get you back on the show maybe in uh, three to six months time in the new year. Let's sure. maybe see where you guys are at and we can really unpack a little bit more about uh, Startup Bootcamp and the startup scene. Awesome. I'd love to. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Matt. Appreciate cool. it. Lovely. Cheers, Cheers pal. Cheerio. This is just a quick message to all of you who have not yet gone to digitalkungfu.co.za to register and sign up to join the Digital Kung Fu community. If you do that right now, I will send you some free training. It's uh, some stuff I've developed specifically for entrepreneurs and business owners. Uh, I like to kill my subscribers with kindness, so to speak. Um, but yeah, the main reason is it gives me a way to communicate with you and to get to know you personally a bit better. So if you haven't done so, please do that now. And so until next time, Keep hustling with Digital Kung Fu. Remember that the Digital Kung Fu Show is now on iTunes, so head on over there now and leave us a review. You can also catch the Digital Kung Fu Show on player.fm, Stitcher, and cliffcentral.com. Thanks for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. If you'd like to check out more episodes and get access to our growing community of entrepreneurs working together to succeed in business, then please visit our website at www.digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.